Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. On March 2nd, uh, 2023, a, a trial some of you may be familiar with if you are like me and you are a fan of, of true crime, then you're probably familiar with the trial of Alex Murdaugh down in South Carolina who was convicted of murdering his wife and his 22-year-old son. Uh, now, Murdaugh was a, a, an attorney from a small town in South Carolina. He was part of a very prominent, very influential family in the town and in the area. His, his, town, his uh, family went back generations in that small South Carolina town. He actually uh, were actually uh, credited with basically building the town. Uh, but as, as the trial went on and as uh, things became uh, revealed, it was found that Alex Murdahl was not just a prominent figure in the town, but he was a, 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 a vicious criminal. He used his power, he used his influence and his family connections to cover up his crimes for years. Uh, he'd been stealing from people. Uh, he'd been murdering friends and family members to hide his crimes. Uh, and what most people were, were fascinated about was the, the difference between how Alex Murdoch presented himself to the jury and to the public and to the town and what was really revealed about him and his private life and who he really was. Uh, at the end of the trial, the judge actually pleaded with him to, you know, he was facing overwhelming evidence. Uh, there was no doubt he was guilty of what he was being charged with and guilty of what he was found guilty of. And so the judge pleaded with him, said, look, everybody knows what happened. There's overwhelming evidence that you've done these things. Just confess to your crimes. Just admit that you've done it. He refused to say he was guilty and just said he was a loving husband and a loving father who was trying to do the best for his family and he was completely innocent. Matter of fact, this week he filed a motion for a new trial claiming that the prosecutors had tampered with the jury. And despite what every uh, piece of evidence said, despite what all the testimony showed, he was not a terrible human being who killed his wife and his son, but he was a wonderful, upstanding member of society. Uh, the entire case just really shows how difficult it is for people to confess their sins. Even when we're, we're presented with, with evidence that we, people know we've done what we're accused of, we don't like being told how bad we really are. Now, hopefully, none of us here are guilty of the crimes that Alex Murdoch have been found guilty of. I'm not going to ask, uh, but hopefully nobody here has done those things. But we've, we've all had a time in our life where we are confronted with our sin. We have to decide what we're going to do in those moments. Do we try to cover it up? Do we try to justify it? Do we try to whitewash it so it's not as bad as it really is? Do we try to blame it on other people? Or do we fully and completely confess it? What we do in those moments is literally the difference between life and death. Now last week we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and David's sin with Bathsheba, and we did not go easy on him. Uh, I really made it a point to show how 
terrible David's sin actually was. Because again, we, we sometimes cut, we just kind of blow past it like, oh, David committed adultery and had a guy murdered to cover it up. David, number one, David did not commit adultery. David sexually assaulted Bathsheba. She was a victim. She was abused. She was taken advantage of. Her husband was killed to cover it up. And other men in the army were killed to cover up David's sin. Joab was involved in this cover up. Uh, and then, of course, Bathsheba was forced to marry her abuser uh, to cover up David's sin. And so just a, a terrible, terrible situation. The more you look at it, the more you study it, you see really how, how horrendous David's sin actually was. And there's a reason... I wanted to point out how bad David's sin was. And it wasn't David's sin with Bathsheba, David's adultery with Bathsheba. But David was a, a manipulative predator who did everything in his power to cover up his sins. And he almost got away with it. Humanly speaking, he did get away with it. The only reason we know about it is because God chose to preserve it in Scripture. During the time and the culture, only a few people knew about it, and David wasn't you know, blasted or canceled because of what he did, uh, culturally speaking or socially speaking. It was hidden from the world, but David uh, committed this sin, and God knew about it. Now, as 2 Samuel chapter 12 opens, we are less than a year removed from David's sin against God, and really against Bathsheba and her entire family. Now, we know this because she has just given birth to the son that she got pregnant with because of David's assault. Now, during this time uh, in history, it typically took about nine months for a woman to have a baby after conception. Uh, I, I think it's the same now. Uh, but so we know from pregnancy to birth, it's about nine months. And so she's had the baby, so it's a little less than a year for Dave, for the, uh, since David's uh, sin. Now, Nathan, he is the prophet of Israel. He is really serving as kind of Israel's pastor. And he asks to see David. Tells David, say, man, there's something happening in your kingdom that's just, you need to know about it. It's a terrible situation. You've got to handle it. And so he comes and tells David a story about something that happened in the nation of Israel. So let's start reading in chapter 12. Uh, start reading in verse number 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and said unto him, There was... Two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb which he had brought, bought up, had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take his own of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the way, wayfaring man that was come unto him. But he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come unto him. So this is a, a disturbing story. There's these two neighbors who are vastly different in the things they possess. This one man is a very rich man, has a lot of sheep, has a huge flock, uh, he, of course, uses it for wool and, you know, uses it for meat and for selling and for, for prosperity. And so he's a rich man with a lot of uh, property, a lot of wealth to his name. Then you've got this poor guy. This poor guy's got nothing. Uh, he's, he, he doesn't have a farm. He doesn't have a lot of herds. He does have a, a sheep, but this sheep is not part of a flock. This sheep is a pet. He, he loves this sheep. He's raised it with his children. It's, it's part of the family. And if you, you have a pet... 
that is part of your family, you kind of understand what this guy's, what, how this guy feels. It says he it eats from his, from his plate, it drinks from his cup, it sleeps with him. Now, how many of y'all have pets that y'all love and treat like part of your family? Yeah, you did. Yeah, Parker's pet's stupid. But uh, rest of them, you know, I let uh, Scarlett is, is, is one of the family. She's not a pet. She's, she's precious to me. Uh, she, she does eat from my plate. Now, not, I don't eat after her. But, you know, she'll, when I'm eating at the table, she'll lay her head right on my lap until I'm done eating, and then she'll get up in my seat and eat what I left on the plate. Uh, she's, you know, we kind of use her like a pre-dishwasher. She scrapes the plate clean. Uh, she sleeps with us. Now, Scarlett doesn't sleep with us very long. She'll come in bed at night and lay with us to cuddle. But Scarlett needs a lot of leg room. So she'll cuddle with us for a while. Then she'll go to the couch where she can have the whole couch. Now, when April's not home, she sleeps with me all night long. Uh, you know, she's part of my family. She's, she's as precious to me as one of my children. More so sometimes because she has never told me no. Uh, she doesn't backtalk me. She doesn't complain about the speed of the Internet or anything like that. So maybe a little more precious than my children. Uh, and so that's how this guy feels about this lamb. It's, it's one of the family. Uh, and, you know, for us it's kind of strange to have a, a sheep as a pet. But I know recently there's been a trend for people to get these cows as pets. Have you all seen that? April wants to get a cow as a pet, uh, which I'm almost okay with because I'm like, when it gets old, we can eat it. Uh, but apparently you can't eat the cow that's your pet. Uh, but anyway, she wants to get a, a little mini cow. I'm like, we're not getting a mini cow for a pet. But this guy's got a sheep. It's his pet. It's part of his family. And then the, the rich man has a, a traveler, a friend come by to visit. We don't really, I don't really think it's a friend. Some theologians believe it's a friend or a relative. I don't think it's a friend because it's a wayward traveler. And but during the culture, during this time, if someone stopped by seeking... Uh, to, lit, to stay with you the night. That was kind of the thing. There weren't hotels. There wasn't any Airbnbs. If you were a Jewish traveler going through the nation, you could go up to anyone's house and ask them to shelter you and to feed you for the night. And they, because of the Jewish law and because of culture, they would have to do it. So this guy has a visitor stop by who's passing through. He's like, hey, you know, I'm just going through. I want to stay the night. Well, now he's got to feed this guy. He's got to shelter this guy. But he doesn't want to use his own resources. So he, he decides, I'm going to feed this guy, but I'm not going to feed him from my flock. Even though I've got plenty. I've got more than I can count. I'm going to go next door and steal my neighbor's sheep. I'm going to have that sheep killed. I'm going to have that sheep prepared. And I'm going to serve it to this traveler. So he, he takes from his neighbor. And really the only reason he did that was because he could. He had the power to do it. He's a rich guy. What's, who, what, what's this poor man going to do to him? If he drags him before the courts, then they're going to believe this guy. He can buy off the judge. He can buy. So he, he, he did what he did because he could. Then look at verse number 5. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that had done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David is furious. Now, the reason he's asking him to, to he's saying he's got to return him fourfold is that was the Jewish law. If you stole from someone or if you, uh, if you had, did something that caused someone's livestock to die, you had to give back four times what you 
had taken. So if you killed a lamb, you had to give four lambs back. And so the law is, well, he took this guy's lamb, he's got to give him four lambs back. But David says after that he's going to be killed for what he did because he didn't just take this guy's lamb from his flock, he took a member of his family. He murdered a member of his family. So David is furious. But here's the thing. David has just convicted himself to death. Look at verse number 7. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house, and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Amnon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take of thy wives before thine eyes, and give thee unto thy neighbor, and give them unto and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So David thinks he's covered up his sin. He thinks no one knows, and whoever does know is not sane. Joab's not saying. He's not going to put David on blast and tell everybody what he did to Uriah and what he did to Bathsheba. Bathsheba's not talking. So David, his, his, his servants that know, that came to him and said, hey, you know, that woman you wanted us to get for you, she's somebody's wife, and David's saying, get her anyway. They're not talking. David thinks he's covered everything up. But Nathan tells him, says, David, even if no one on earth knew what you did, God knew it. God saw it, and God is furious with what you've done. Look at verse number 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because of this deed, thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme thy child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Now there's a lot in this story we're going to focus on, but really we're going to look at David's path to repentance. David's path to restoration of his relationship with God. It begins with, first of all, it begins with a confrontation. A confrontation of his sin. You know, something or someone, majesty, confrontation. There we go. Someone or something brings your sin to your face. Let's you know that what you've done is wrong. Now in David's case, it was Nathan. The prophet comes to him and says, David, God knows and I know what you have done. For you it may be a rebuke from a friend. Maybe a family member who questions why you're doing what you're doing. It may be a message that you hear at church or it may be just the Holy Spirit working on your conscience as you're reading the Bible. But whatever it is, something confronts you with your sin. You are led to know that it's not hidden, it's not forgotten, God knows about it and something has to be done. After confrontation, we have confession. Confrontation leads to confession. Now, 
David's confession, it includes a lot of elements we're going to look at more in Psalm 51. But these elements have to be included in every true confession. You know, a lot of people confess to kind of get sympathy or try to help people forget what they've done or forgive what they've done, but it's not true confession. And if these these elements we're going to look at today are not included in the confession, it's not really a confession. Now, from confession, we go to reassurance. After David repents, Nathan tells him, God still loves you, David. God's not done with you, David. No matter what David had done, and again, David's sin is incredible. It's tragic. It's horrendous. It affected lots of people. But God says, David, despite what you have done, I'm not going to remove my love from you. I'm not going to remove my hand from you. David's not going to die because of his sin. God still had a plan for David. And look, that's an important part of restoration. That we we try to get the reassurance that God's still for us and God's still with us, and we rush too quickly to it. But after reassurance, we finally have restoration. God, David... David tell, uh, Nathan tells David, David, you're not going to die, but there will be consequences for his sin. Now, in David's case, his son is going to die. In David's case, God says, the sword is never going to depart from your house. Basically, God tells him, your house is going to be a mess because of what you've done, but I still love you. I still have a plan for you. There are consequences for sin. And that's one thing we, we, we sometimes forget about. You know, you reap what you sow even when you get forgiveness from God. And sometimes we forget about We think, well, you know, I I confessed my sin. God forgave me. Why am I still suffering for my sin? There are still consequences for your actions. You know, you, you commit adultery on your wife. God will forgive you. Your wife may forgive you. But you know what? Trust is broken. It's going to take a while to build that up. You may still lose your marriage. That's not, well, God's lying to me and God didn't forgive me. No, there's still consequences for your actions. You go out and get drunk and drive and murder someone because you're drunk driving. Yeah, God will forgive you, but there's still consequences for your actions. Just because you're sitting in jail for what you did doesn't mean God didn't forgive you. Yeah, He forgave you. Yes, He's restored relationship to you, but you still have to deal with what you did. And that's what's happening in David's case. He's still, he's still gonna, God's still gonna use him. God still does a lot of good things for him. Remember, it's after this that God calls him a man after God's own heart. His life's not over. And here's the thing. No matter what you have done, if you are not dead, God still has something for you. God still wants to use you. No matter what you've done, no matter what sin you've committed, you get, for, you get forgiveness, you get restoration, God still has something for you. This is the path that God wants us to take in our own sin. But here's the thing. We can't skip any of those steps. We have to go through every single one of them. We can't get the reassurance and restoration to a relationship with God without being confronted by our sin and confessing our sin the way God expects us to. For the majority of our time today, though, we're going to be in Psalm 51. So go ahead and turn over to Psalm 51, and we'll be looking there for the rest of our time together. Now, uh, David wrote this psalm during this period. 
And it shows us how important confession is to our relationship with God and to our restoration of God. Before we start looking at any of the verses, I want to look at the, the introduction. Your, most Bibles have an introduction here. It says, to the chief musician. This is a song David wrote down. A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. David wrote this because of the confrontation with David, with Nathan. Because of his relationship with God. He wrote this because of what was going on in his life. And it gives us several components that really show us the difference between false confession and true confession. According to, according to Paul in the New Testament, there is a kind of confession of sin that leads to life. But there's a type of confession of sin that leads to death. We have to truly confess our sins before God. Sometimes confession looks sincere. may include tears, may include a lot of I'm sorry's, but they don't lead to life. In this psalm, David gives us four things that true confession must include. And here's the first one. The first thing it must include, it must include the, the realization that I am responsible for my sin. Look at verse number 1. I'm sorry, uh, chapter, let's start reading chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 51. Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me throughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Here's what I want to focus on right now. For I, I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. True confession does not try to justify your sin. Well, I know I messed up, but. I know I did this, but. Here's why. It's acknowledging I messed up, period. I am responsible for my sin. doesn't try to minimize it. doesn't try to deflect your sin at all. You know, David, he could have said, but you know, Nathan, you know, it's really hard being king. The pressure that's put on me. Every year we gotta go to every year when the weather breaks and spring comes, we gotta go to war because that's what we do. And I gotta be victorious because I'm this great warrior king who who's led Israel to great victories, and yeah, I beat Goliath and everybody expects so much of me. It's just it's so much pressure, and I just I want to take a break from the pressure. I wanted to stay home for a little while and let Joab run the army and me just relax and then it's just so hard being king. He doesn't say that. He doesn't try to get out, well, well, you know, Joab, yeah, maybe I, or maybe Nathan, I did wrong, but you know what, Bathsheba, you know, she, she knew what she was doing while she was bathing. She knew people, she knew I could see her. She was trying to entice me. He doesn't do any of that. He says, I sinned. My fault completely. He doesn't talk about his, his past accomplishments and, you know, a great king. Yeah, I sinned, but you know what? Uh, you know, but I, I'm still a pretty good king. I still, you know, got Israel to this place and I still defeated all of our enemies. And look, I'm not as bad as Saul. He says, I sinned. There's no excuses. There's no justification. I have no one to blame but me. See, real confession and real apologies don't include certain words. They don't include the words if. If. Everybody, everybody say this to you. 
well, if I did anything to hurt you, I'm sorry. That's not an apology. Well, yeah, I said that, but if you took it the wrong way, that's not my fault, that's yours. That's what you're saying. If I did, I mean, I'm not owning up to my own, own wrong. You, you know, it shouldn't have the words, you know, but. Yeah, I did that, but this is why. You're putting the blame on the other person. Yeah, I sinned, but I did that because of them. doesn't include the word maybe. You know, may, you know I'm sorry, maybe I wasn't thinking of you like I should have. You know, it says, well, what I did wasn't wrong, just the way you took it was wrong. You know, those all show that an apology wasn't real. Now, do not write those down and use it against your spouse later. You know, when your spouse does something and he or she, I would say she, but let's face it, he apologizes and he says, I'm sorry, but don't be, well, pastor said a true apology. Don't, I'm not giving this as ammunition for your next fight with someone. I'm just telling you when you're confessing to God, it shouldn't include those type of things. David says, God, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. These are factors, you know, there are factors that may have influenced why you did what you did. Maybe other people have wronged you first. Maybe you've been affected by the home you grew up in and through no fault of your own. Maybe you had pressure from others to do what you did. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, your sins are your sins. Your choices are your choices alone. Too, you know, too many people, we blame our sins on other people. Yeah, I committed adultery, but my spouse just doesn't, she doesn't treat me right. He doesn't listen to me. But this guy does. This woman knows how to, how to treat me, how to respect me. So yeah, I did wrong, but it's not my fault. Yeah, I stole from my employer, but you know what? They don't pay me what I'm worth anyway. You know, they, don't, they don't give me a living wage, so it's okay that I took a little extra or I, or I lied on my time card to get what I was deserved to me anyway. You know, stop focusing on what other people did and focus on your sin. Your sin is your fault. My sin is my fault. No one else's. Take responsibility for your action. Second thing true confession has to have, has to have the understanding that my sin is first and foremost against God. My sin is first and foremost against God. Look at verse number 4. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Now looking at David's sin, we can name a lot of people that his sin was against. His sin was against Bathsheba. He forced her into this physical relationship. She, he had all the power, he abused his power, his, his sin went against Uriah. He took Uriah's wife for his personal lustful pleasure. He had Uriah murdered to cover up his sin. His sin was against Joab. Joab is complicit 
And in having Uriah murdered to cover up David's sin, he sinned against the, the squadron of soldiers that Uriah died with just so David's sin could be covered up with. What about those soldiers' wives and their, their, their children and their families? David's sin was against a lot of people. Uriah's family lost a husband, they lost a father, a brother, a son, a friend. The men that died so that they, so he could cover up his sin were killed against, and it was sinned against their family. But David said, God, I hurt a lot of people in what I did. But my sin was against you only and no one else. He abused Bathsheba sexually. He murdered Uriah and others to cover it up. But his sin was only Against God? He violated the trust of the nation. So is, is David saying, those, those, those don't matter. Yeah, I mistreated, you know, I mistreated Bathsheba. Yeah, I murdered Uriah. Yeah, I killed a lot of other people to cover it up. They don't matter. No, he's not saying that. He's not saying that what he did to them doesn't matter. He is writing a Hebrew poem. And a Hebrew poetry they would use superlatives to make a point. The point he is making is, yes, his sin was toward other people. He hurt other people. He sinned against other people. But what he did to God was far worse than what he did to Bathsheba. What he did to God was far worse than what he did to Uriah. What he did to God was far worse than anything than what he did to anybody else. He demonstrates an important aspect of confession that we often overlook. Our sin, no matter what it is, no matter who it's against, is first and foremost against God. Now David's sin on a human level was bad. It was wicked. But it pales in comparison to the wickedness he committed against God. You know, sexual abuse, abuse of power, murder. These are probably the worst sins you could ever commit against someone else. We can all agree with that, right? Sexually abusing someone is up there with the worst sins that you could commit. Murdering so I don't see enough hands up for that. Okay, we had a couple people agree with me here. Murder. It's probably one of the worst sins you could commit against someone else. We agree with that, right? Right? Okay. Especially murder against someone who sexually abused someone you knew, right? That's okay. That's okay. I agree with that one. That's fine. But, you know, humanly speaking, it's pretty bad. But here's the thing. The worst aspect of your sin isn't what it does to other people. It's what it does to God. Your sin is vile in the eyes of God. Your sin hurts a lot of people. You know, a lot of, a lot of people, even a lot of believers nowadays, struggle with the concept of hell. You hurt a few people on earth, you suffer all of eternity in hell. Or, you live a good life, you treat people good, but you just don't hear the gospel and don't accept God as your Savior, and so you end up still spending the eternity in hell. Here's the thing, hell isn't as severe as it is because of the sins we commit against other people. It is as bad as it is because of the sin we commit against God. And we are born sinners violating and against God. 
This shows us how evil sin is in God's eyes. David said, God, yeah, I hurt a lot of people. But my sin, first and foremost, is against you. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me in the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Here's what Jeremiah is telling us. Your sin, my sin, our sin, is twofold. The first thing it does is we are rejecting God. God is our refuge. God is our source of joy. God is our source of peace. And we reject Him, and we start looking for joy and peace and satisfaction other places. And it leaves a void in our lives. And we start filling it with things that cannot be that. We start filling it with things that cannot satisfy us like God does. So what David is doing is David is asking, God, why weren't you enough for me? Why didn't I trust you to take care of me? Why didn't I trust you to provide for me? I I thought you weren't doing enough, so I took matters into my own hands. His soul was empty. He was disconnected from God, and that was his main sin. He took what didn't belong to him because he didn't trust God. His sins, before they hurt anybody horizontally, they hurt God vertically. Look again at verse verse 4. Against thee, the only, have I sinned. He says, you know, he, he, used, he says that he sinned against God twice. Against you, you only, was my sin against. It shows the intensity of his emotion. After all you've given me, God, after you took me from the pasture and gave me the palace, after you empowered me to, to conquer and defeat Goliath, after you protected me while I ran from Saul, after you conquered all my enemies, after you promised me so much, I rejected you. And I hurt you. We focus on what our sin does to others. And we should. We should focus on that. I'm not saying that you can live your life and hurt whoever you want to hurt and say, well, I apologize to God. You just got to get over it. No, no, no. When you hurt other people, you deal with that hurt to other people. But remember, the first thing person you hurt was God. We feel guilt about how our sin makes us look to other people. When was the last time you felt guilty about what your sin did to God? You felt guilty about how your sin hurt God, after all He's done for us, after leaving the glory of heaven to come to earth, to live a perfect life because we couldn't, after dying on the cross and absorbing the wrath of of God for our sins, after, after taking the punishment that we should have taken, after being buried and rising again three days later to redeem us to God the Father, after giving us the Holy Spirit when we accept Him as our Savior, after everything He's done for us, We walk away from Him. We sin against Him. We hurt Him without even thinking about it. Until you are most upset about what your sin has done to God, you're not going to change. Until you realize your sin nailed Him to the cross, you're not going to change. Until you see that you're saying to God when you sin, God, thanks for everything you've done, but you're just... You're not enough for me. 
I don't trust you enough. I don't love you enough. You're never going to change. True confession has to realize that your sin is first and foremost against God. Here's the third thing. True confession has to realize that my sin goes down to the core of who I really am. Look at verse number 5. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me again. Most of the time, we like to reduce our sin or the consequences of our sin by blaming it on other people. I was, I was with the wrong crowd. You know, I, got, I got caught up in a weak moment. You know, I, I just made a poor choice. And that's why I did what I did. David said, God, my sin, it came from who I truly am. I raped Bathsheba because I'm a lustful person. I murdered Uriah because deep down I'm just a murderer. I did all this because I am a selfish person who is only looking out for himself. I, at my core, I am a sinner. You know, have you ever done something or said something that embarrassed you in front of someone else? You know, maybe you were at home and you saw your wife and said, honey, you look tired and apparently you said you're, you're old and ugly. You ever done that? Or, oh, you're going to have another hot dog. And apparently you said you're, you're a fat cow. You shouldn't have... Apparently that's what I said. But, you know, you, you're, you're talking to someone and you say something. Something slips out because you're tired or whatever and you, you embarrass yourself or you do something and you're caught and you, you embarrass yourself. You feel bad about it and you go to them and say, you know what, I'm sorry I said that. That's not, that's not really who I am. But here's the thing. That is really who you are. At that moment... You meant what you said. You meant what you did. What we mean is as we get older, we are better at filtering who we are. You know, young kids say whatever's on their mind. They see someone who looks bad, or their socks don't match, or they've, they've got a physical deformity, and little kids will point it out. Oh, look at your face! You can't do that as an adult. Why? Because you don't think, oh, look at your... No, because you, you've gotten better at filtering it. You know, there are these new car, cars nowadays, the new cars with a new GPS. Uh, I heard a, a story, a preacher told a story about he was driving one of these, he rented a car and it was a newer car and he had a GPS and he had a, had his, had a lot of his pastoral staff in the car with him. And his GPS had the uh, ability to tell you when you were going over the speed limit. You know, he, it's 55 and he's going 65 and the GPS would come on and say, the speed limit is 55, you are currently exceeding the speed limit. It's kind of embarrassing when everybody in the car knows you're sinning. Well, it's just, still you're sinning! Aren't we glad that doesn't, there's not an app that does that, that every time you come up to someone, it tells them what you're really thinking? Yeah, well, I'm so grateful for that. But here's the thing, God sees everything. And the point is, you're not, I didn't think that or say that because I was tired, or it was a weak moment, or you, fr no, that's just, it's who I am. I may have gotten better at hiding it sometimes, but at the core, that's who I am. Just because we're good at hiding who we are, doesn't mean that we're good, decent people. True repentance recognizes that your sin comes from the core of who you are. That deep down, at the very root of everything, we're sinners. And sinners sin. Sinners hurt 
people. David pursued lust in his heart because at his core, he was an idolatrous, lustful person. He murdered because in his heart, he cared more about his reputation than he did other people's lives. He didn't do what he did because he had a weak moment. He did what he did because at the core, that's who he was. As a parent, you know this. How many of you parents ever had to teach your children to lie? They just do it naturally. Any of y'all ever got a call from a babysitter or a daycare that your child has bitten someone? Yeah. If you're a parent, you've had a kid bite someone. They, oh, I'm, I'm hoping that they didn't learn that because when you and your spouse got in a fight, y'all started chomping on each other. They bite because that's what they, at the core, they're biters. It's just what they do. They, you know, you get a toddler and you put them down for a nap and they're screaming bloody murder, throwing a temper tantrum. You didn't teach them that. They are at their very core, they are sinners. You know, that's what, that's who you are. You didn't hang out with the wrong crowd. You are the wrong crowd. That would lead us to despair if it weren't for the gospel. God offers us a new heart. I want to look real quick at verse number 10 in chapter 51. David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The word create there is the Hebrew word bara. It's the same word used in Genesis 1.1 when God created everything. God gives us a new, clean heart. God gives us a right spirit. Here's the thing. We don't need reformation. We need resurrection. And true confession begins when you admit that you sinned because that's who you are. You sinned because you're a sinner. You didn't sin because you made a bad choice. You didn't sin because you got caught up in a moment. You sinned because you're a sinner. You have no hope of acceptance by God except through His grace. You have no hope of change except by His power. That leads us to the fourth thing that we have to understand in true confession. Fourth thing true confession has to know is, I offer nothing to excuse my sin. Look at verse number 16. David says, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. See, David didn't try to make up for his sin by buying God off with religious acts. That's what Saul did. Saul sinned against God and he just tried to do religious things to make God happy. That's what a lot of us do. We don't obey what the Lord says and we try to offset our sin. I'm cheating on my spouse, so I'll just I'll be more faithful to this church. I'll serve in the church more. That'll make up for it. I'm looking at pornography, so I'll just I'll give more of my time or give more money to the church. We're trying to follow God on our terms. We're trying to make our own path to obedience. When we sin, we make promises to God to try to offset our sin. We want God's forgiveness on credit. God, you forgive me now and I'll, I'll pay you back later. God doesn't want that. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, thou wilt not despise. God 
doesn't want religious duty or religious acts to give us forgiveness. God wants brokenness. God wants surrender. God wants repentance. See, the gospel is that God did everything necessary to save you. You did not earn salvation because you cannot earn salvation. You can't borrow it on credit or lay hold of it through promises that you're going to do better. You can only receive salvation as a gift. The only way to receive it is through total surrender. You know, we see a lot of incredible promises in this chapter and in this, this song of forgiveness. Look at verse number 1. Some of the promises David God gives us. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to Thy loving kindness and according to the multitude of Thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. David says, God, You're going to give me mercy. Here's the thing. Mercy is, thing, is getting something you do not deserve. We do not deserve salvation. We do not deserve forgiveness. We deserve judgment. We deserve hell. What God gives us is mercy and love. Then he talks about the steadfast love of God. Steadfast love is a Hebrew word, hased. It is one-sided love. God says, I'm going to love you no matter what you do for me. I'm going to love you when you reject me. When you forget about me. When you oppose me. God says, I am going to love you. God's blessing is not based on our performance. God's blessings are based on His love for us. His willingness to be faithful when we are not. Then He used the word blot out. The word blot out is a Hebrew word. It's the same word that God uses in Genesis 6. When God floods the whole earth to remove sin, God is flooding David. and David recognizes that his heart is as wicked as the people who died in the flood. And he needs it to be flooded with God's love and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. He needs his sins drowned out. Look at verse number 2. <clears throat> Wash me throughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, wash me throughly is a common Hebrew word. It was, it's used to describe how you would wash clothes. Now, in this time, again, there, there wasn't Maytag and GE and Samsung washing machines. You didn't go down and you know, put some of that fabric softener in there and you know, just hit the button and hope it works out. You had to gather water. You had to make soap. You had to get a washboard. And you had to scrub the, clean, the clothes clean. Work those clothes to get them done. It's uh, talking about, you know, imagine a woman with a washboard scrubbing the ab agitation, rubbing the stain out. That's what David wants God to do to his heart. He says, God, scrub my heart clean. Remove all the sin from me. But cleansing from sin, again, look at uh, verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me thoroughly is a common everyday word. Cleanse me from my sin is a religious word. 
It's speaking of the, relig- uh, the ritualistic cleansing that the priests would have to go through to prepare themselves for the religious services. So what David is saying is, God, I want you to scrub my heart clean so that I can be used to serve you again. Look at verse number 7. <clears throat> it says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, hyssop is a flower that had thorns on it. Uh, It it appears two times in Scripture before this. The first time it's used, it's used in Exodus. During the Passover, they would use the hyssop to dip it in the blood and spread the blood on the the doorpost before the Passover. And then it was used in Leviticus. It would be used to cleanse a leper. They would dip the blood of a sacrifice. They would sprinkle it over the leper to cleanse them from their leprosy. David is saying, God, I have leprosy in my heart. And I need the blood of the Lamb to cleanse me. Here's the thing. Your sin. And again, most of us, I'm hoping, have never sinned like David sinned. That's why I wanted to focus on it so much. It wasn't just a mistake wasn't adultery. David committed some of the vilest sins anyone could commit against another person. And God forgave him. And God loves him. And God continued to use him. I don't think anyone here has sexually assaulted and murdered someone to cover it up. I hope. If you Seriously, if you have, don't tell me because I'm really going to judge you. Seriously going to judge you. Uh, and if it's still statute of limitations, we're going to deal with that as well. But we look at our sin and say, well, I didn't do that against David. I didn't do what David did. I just, I just lied to my wife. I just lied to my employer. I just, I just, just a bad thought. Just a bad, I didn't do anything like that. But here's the thing. No matter how big or little your sin is in your eyes, your sin is vile in the eyes of God. It is repulsive in the eyes of God. It is great in the eyes of God. But though your sin is great, God's grace is greater. David uses four words in Psalm 51 to describe his sin. He uses 19 words to describe God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness is greater than any sin you can commit against Him. God never turns broken people away. He loves them. He accepts them. He forgives them. I want to finish with verse number 13 in Psalm 51. Then, after restoration, then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. David says, God, I've gotten your forgiveness and I'm so grateful, but I am going to spend my life warning other people about the dangers of sin. You know the best people to help broken people are people who have been broken before. The best people to help sinners come back to restoration and relationship with God are people who have sinned and have found restoration with God. You know, I'm not giving you permission. I'm not saying go out and sin so you can say, well, I'm going to go out and sin so God can use me to help other sinners. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not giving you permission to sin so God can use you for that special ministry. 
But sin does not end God's ability to use you. The only thing that stops God's ability from using you is your refusal to confess your sin and get right with Him. You know, as Christians, we believe in the cross. We believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. And on the cross, He absorbed the wrath of God for my sins and your sins. He suffered what we should have suffered. He died because we should have died. We believe in the cross, but we also believe in the empty tomb. He was buried, but three days later, He rose again. See, the cross assures us that there is forgiveness for our sin. The tomb reassures us that there's a resurrection waiting for us. God can take the dead remains of our sins and resurrect them and restore them, bring them back to life for His glory. Look at verse number 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of Thy righteousness. The greatest thing you can do when you're being restored to relationship and fellowship with God, is to worship Him. That's why God forgave you. You are a trophy of God's grace. God wants to use you to point other people to Him. See, we have to be aware of confession without repentance. And a lot of you are sitting here thinking, yeah, He's, gonna, he's given me tools to use to see if someone else has truly repented. If someone, no, no, no. Use this to see if you have truly repented. Remember the story in the New Testament? Jesus says, get the, the plank out of your eye before you start worrying about the splinter in your brother's eye. Look at your life and say, have I truly confessed my sin? Have I truly repented of my sin? This isn't a tool for you to use against someone else. Well, you say you're sorry, but preacher said, no, don't bring me into that. You need to get right with God first, then let, let God deal with everybody else. But we give people assurance, and we, res- we want assurance of forgiveness without evidence of repentance. Nathan didn't do that. It was only after David repented of his sins that Nathan told him, God still loves you. Did God not love him before? Yeah, God loved him before he repented, but that fellowship was broken. It was after repentance, Nathan said, God's still got something for you. True repentance isn't just telling people or telling God what you did. It's admitting that what you did is who you are and turning from that. Confession without repentance is worthless to God. And we should tell people that. We should tell ourselves that. God receives any confession, but it has to be accompanied with brokenness and repentance. When you come before God broken about what your sin did to Him, repentant about what your sin has done and wanting to change, then you will truly change. Without true confession, without true repentance, you're never going to change. See, here's the thing. God can and will forgive any sin. David shows us that. But we have to be broken over our sin. We have to be repentant over our sin. You may be here this morning, and you're on the verge 
of going one way or another. You've sinned. And you know it. Maybe no one else does. Maybe your, your, your family doesn't know. Maybe your parents don't know. Maybe your, your wife doesn't know. Maybe your kids don't know. Maybe no one knows, but you know you have sinned. And God has brought it to your face. And you have a choice. Cover it up. Justify it. Hide it. Try to get away from it. Or truly confess it and repent of it. You have a choice to do what to do. Confess your sin, repent, and get right with God. You may have, you may have fooled everyone in the world, but you haven't fooled God. You may be saved, but you have sin in your life, and that leaves you broken. Get it right today. Don't leave here broken. If you choose to cover your sin, or justify your sin, or diminish your sin, it will lead to spiritual death. Choose God. Choose forgiveness. Choose joy. Choose life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.